Welcome to First Baptist Church Decatur's Sermon of the Week. Today's sermon is from Reverend Dr. David Gushin. What do you see when you look at the cross? What do you feel when you look at the cross? What do you think when you look at the cross? At the cross, sisters and brothers, where is God? At the cross, where are you? And at the cross, what did Jesus do? What does it mean? During this 2017 Lenten season, I've decided to preach six sermons reflecting on six different interpretations of the meaning of the cross. These interpretations are all derived, or at least easily derivable, from the New Testament. All have been adopted at one time or another by Christian theologians and regular Christian folk. I enter into this series as your preacher with, a, with four foundational assumptions or presuppositions. First, the cross is for most Christians the central symbol of our entire faith. Jesus dying on the cross is the central event for many Christians of our entire faith. We are dealing with sacred matters here. And they must be treated sacredly and will be. My second assumption is that there is no single interpretation of the meaning of the cross. In this series, we will survey the field with open mind and heart, asking what each interpretation has to say to us, perhaps including what it has to say to us that might disturb us or surprise us. I will not treat any of these six views with disrespect, even where I might prefer a different one. Nobody has a monopoly on the meaning of the cross. Third assumption is that the meaning or meanings that Christians see in the cross are a tangled mix of feelings and thoughts. They go to the heart and not just the head, and they're not always fully coherent. So I'm not going to attempt to make it simply or purely rational or cognitive. There's something going on with us Christians in relation to the cross that is a mystery. And yet, once one does move to analysis, it becomes clear that theologies of the cross generally tend to reflect the interpreter's most important beliefs overall about God and humanity, about sin and salvation about Satan. So basically, theologies of the cross implicate Christian theologies more broadly. What I'm saying is that you can see someone's entire theology in a nutshell when you ask them what they think about the cross. And so we will turn to the cross over these six weeks. The images behind me that Billy Roberts put together for me will just rotate through and it, they show so many different artistic and photographic and, and other kinds of depictions of this central symbol of the Christian faith. I'm using these images to help our minds to stay, our hearts to stay engaged as well as our minds. 
So, the cross. The Apostle Paul's most famous theological formulation, probably of any type, is found in this passage in Romans 3, 21 through 26. This is the particular passage in Paul that became most central for the Protestant Reformation, beginning with Martin Luther. In scholarship today, the meaning of this passage, or how to even translate it, is disputed. But that's today. A certain pattern of interpretation of Romans 3 has for centuries been embedded, embedded in Protestant Christianity especially. That interpretation is so important that for many people, this passage is the single most important statement in the Bible, or at least the single most important statement about the meaning of the cross. It is woven into popular understandings of Christianity. Its implications are reflected in many of our hymns about the cross. And what is that? What is the central idea? The central idea is that Jesus died on the cross as a blood sacrifice that atones for all human sins. And that is the concept that I want us to ponder this morning. It's a concept that is so familiar to many of us that we may not even need to think we need to you know, hear any more about it. We already know about it. Everyone knows that this is what the cross means, that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Even if that is where you find yourself this morning, step back with me to consider the broader story in which this particular claim is made. The broader story that culminates in the claim that Jesus died on the cross as a blood sacrifice that atones for all human sins. That broader story is told in highly compact form by Paul in this passage this morning. And so we'll be looking at Romans 3, 21 through 26 pretty closely. The broader story is this. There is a God. This God is the creator of the universe and the Lord of all. But this God, the one and only God, has revealed himself to the, to the people Israel in particular. God has done this through the history of salvation with Israel and through the sacred writings of the Jewish Bible, the Torah, and the prophets especially. These writings reveal that God is a righteous God, holy and just. Part of God being holy and just is that God is offended deeply by sin. Sin separates human beings from God and from one another. Sin is the biggest problem in the world for Paul and for the biblical tradition. Sin must be dealt with by God. The story goes on that God's initial response to sin was wrath, judgment. A wrath that decreed death, physical death and spiritual death for sinners. It's there as early as Genesis 3. It's in the Noah story. It's all through the Old Testament. But even beginning with the Noah story, we see that the last word of God is not wrath. The last word is mercy. God makes a covenant with Israel and begins the long march of salvation. God does not give up on humanity. Don't don't let that phrase go without thinking about it. Despite the myriad forms of rebellion, injustice, 
evil that characterized humanity, God never gives up on humanity or on you and me. The story continues. God's covenant relationship with Israel has many dimensions. God offers instruction in his will through divine revelation, through law and prophets and writings. God promises protection for Israel from enemies. And the Old Testament includes the record of an elaborate worship system centering on blood sacrifice for sin. Animals were offered as sacrifice by people to God through the priests in the tabernacle or in the temple. And why? This was God's command to atone for human sin. The idea was that instead of people having to die for their own sins, animals die as their sacrificial substitutes. Because all of these elements of Israelite religion are found in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they're all treated as central elements of the Jewish faith. You've got law, you've got the temple, you've got the sacrificial system, you've got the prophetic writings. But then, in 70 A.D., the temple itself was destroyed by the Romans and it was never rebuilt. But even before that, Paul, who was Jewish in background, was writing at a time when the temple was still functioning as the center of Jewish life. Animals were still being slain in the temple as sacrifices for sin. And Paul, who was trained as a a leading rabbinic or pharisaic thinker in his community, is, is steeped in this system. But then one day, Paul was knocked off his horse by a man named Jesus. And he spent the rest of his life trying to follow Jesus. And he spent a lot of time in his writings trying to make sense of how Jesus, the crucified one, could be the Messiah of Israel and how he could fulfill the trajectory of Jewish faith. Romans 3 offers one critically important place in which Paul pulls the whole story together. Paul says that Jesus is the culmination of the Jewish journey with God, and he is also salvation for Gentiles. He says that Jesus discloses to the world the true character of God's righteousness, which also means God's justice. Now it has been climactically revealed in Jesus. God has made a move in Jesus Christ that deals with the human sin problem, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. It is a move that has brought to a conclusion and a culmination the sacrificial system of Israel, but also for the Gentiles who didn't even know that system, because Paul says everyone needs salvation, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has put forward Jesus as a once-for-all atoning sacrifice for every human being's sin. At the cross, Paul says, the entire weight of the world's sin was laid upon one God-man, Jesus Christ. Every sin ever committed was there. Every sin that was committed before Jesus came. Every sin that was done to Jesus himself Every sin that has ever been committed or will ever be committed was loaded on the weary, bleeding shoulders of Jesus. That's what Paul says. It is quite a story. 
And Paul says that this moment in which all the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus Christ truly reveals the character of God and the nature of God who is just and ultimately who is merciful. God's justice is satisfied by the fact that you might say the sins are paid for. God's mercy is expressed by the fact that the sins are not paid for by us. They're paid for by the innocent Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. So the mercy that we did not deserve comes to us, says Paul, as a free gift of God's grace. We deserve, how many times have you been told this? Somewhere along the way in church. We deserved wrath. Jesus deserved honor. Jesus received punishment. We were offered mercy. We have been redeemed. A word which means we have been bought back as if by ransom by Jesus on the cross. Paul doesn't say it here, but it becomes clear in the New Testament that for for Christian theology, this atoning sacrifice on the cross culminates and ends the Jewish sacrificial system. There is no longer a need to sacrifice goats or pigeons for human sin because the Messiah has been slain once and for all. So this is the basic story that Paul lays out. And the passage also tells us what we're supposed to do with this story. How are we supposed to respond to this staggering act in which the totally perfect, the only perfect human being who never sinned, who was God in the flesh, was murdered on the cross and bore on his back, on his body, in his self, the sins of the world. This combination of divine mercy and justice, what are we supposed to do about it? Paul says it three different ways in this passage. In 3.22, he says it is effective for all who believe. In 3.25, he says it is effective through faith. In 3.26, he says he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, here we run into a problem that I would like to correct once and for all. I'll never correct it once and for all, but I wish I could. The problem is that many, many, many gazillion Christians were told, all you got to do is believe. Which meant, in response to this suffering and sacrifice, all you have to do is say, yes, I believe that. I am quite confident that that is not what Paul meant. It's not what Paul means in the Greek. It's what we did, in a sense, to cheapen what response is required of us. The response that we are asked to give that is in the Greek word that is translated believe means something more like total commitment, total trust, and total obedience. It's not, I believe that this did that. It is, I will will serve the Son of God every day of my life with every fiber of my being. That's what the response is that Paul is asking for. Follow, commit, trust, obey. Believe is not a strong enough word for what we're talking about there. Trust and obey, there's no other way. 
It's not merely a nod of the head. How many generations of Christians went down the aisle thinking, well, at least I get the get-out-of-jail-free card because I say I believe that? That's a cheapening of the cost of the cross. Now I want to trouble the waters a little bit. I am confident that there are many here in this room this morning who are deeply moved by this account of the meaning of the cross. The traditional Protestant interpretation that Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for human sin, the Lamb of God slain for the world. But there are others who are deeply disturbed by this idea as to what the cross means. That's okay. Let's, let's trouble the waters together and think about it a little bit. The trouble that people point out is this. They say, we're not so sure about this image of God. They say, it sounds like you're saying that God the Father killed God the Son because you and you and you and me sinned. How is that justice? How is that right? And then maybe people go on a little further to say, what about that whole sacrificial system? What sense did it ever really make that, you know, you commit adultery and the way you deal with your sin problem is you go to the temple and sacrifice an animal that had nothing to do with it? Some people say, shouldn't the whole thing be seen as a kind of primitive religiosity from back in the childhood of the human race that we should leave behind? I think the most serious objection to this idea is the, is the claim that what this does is to inscribe a kind of a scapegoat theology into Christianity and into Judaism, in which the way that we deal with our problem is to sacrifice an innocent other, leading to the question, who must suffer and die so the rest of us can be secure? I get these objections, but I've never been fully persuaded by them, in part because the biblical texts based on this theme are just there. They're in the canon. And the broader story is that there is a God who is, who is angry at human sin for good reason and that justice is required. Um, and the sacrificial system that is all there in the Old Testament, it is at least coherent to say that within the frame of that narrative, the story of Jesus on the cross makes a sad and profound and beautiful kind of sense. I am touched by it still, despite the objections. Maybe you are too. Behold, the innocent Lamb of God slain for the sins of all the world. When we see Jesus on the cross dying under the weight of human sin, do you grieve? Does it touch you? It touches me. And were you taught something like this? My sins also contributed to what happened on that cross. So it's not what some bad people in 33 AD did. We all participated. Because we are all sinners and we all do things that grieve God. So it was in part my sins and your sins that burdened the weary shoulders of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. Now, what you do with that, I mentioned last week, you can go into some kind of morbid place with that. I'm not calling for that. I think the only proper response to that story is gratitude. Leading to 
trust, obedience, and commitment. How can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? How can I say an adequate thanks for the forgiveness you have offered me? How can I thank you enough for bearing my sins in my place? God, how can I say thank you enough for loving me enough to sacrifice your one and only begotten Son on my behalf? How can we sinful human beings adequately say thank you to God for not giving up on us, for choosing justice and mercy rather than just justice? Do you ever read the newspapers and say, how in the world does God put up with the human race? Sometimes it's just one story, and you say, that is the most vile, wicked thing I have ever seen. And God sees the whole thing. But God made a basic policy decision. God said, I will bear with humanity, and I will save human beings through Jesus Christ. And what we say to that is, thank you, and hallelujah. Thank you, and I will serve you. Thank you, and I will live for you. Thank you, and I will try to imitate you. Thank you, and I will trust you, and I will obey you, and I will believe in you, and I will try to help others do the same. I will try to not add any more sin to the great bucket ocean loads of sin in the world. I will try to live right, love right, and serve Jesus with every fiber of my being. The cross can serve as a powerful motivation to live our lives right. I can lay everything on the line for Jesus as he laid everything on the line for me. This I can do. This is what we can do. This is what we must do. It is the only proper response to the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.